Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the weekly podcast series about books in which food is the story. Each week, I talk to authors about their four favourite food moments, which give us a soup song of the full flavour of their books. This week, I'm sipping tea with the rare tea lady herself, Henrietta Lovell, whose book Infused is steeped in the stories of Himalayan skies and Chinese tea ceremonies. But more than anything, it's the story of adventure, resilience, courage and deep, deep pleasure. I asked her what drove her to write a book that's about so much more than tea. As much as tea is everything in my life and as much as I love tea, there is a little bit more to life than tea. And lots of people wanted me to write a book about tea and they wanted me to say, this is white tea, this is green tea, this is the history of tea. And there are amazing books already out there that do that and I wanted to do something a bit different. Also, I'm um, very easily distracted. (laughs) And I can't do a linear line of thought or a, certainly I couldn't have written, sustained a whole book going from premise, premise to conclusion. So um, I wanted to write a book about the people behind tea and why they matter. And Faber said that if you really want to make your revolution, and by revolution I mean for people to really appreciate tea the way they would wine or cheese or anything that we find value in so that my farmers might thrive that I should do it through telling them stories that would make them fall in love rather than beat them over the head with a baseball bat and and you do I mean it's a beautiful read for a start but I absolutely was seduced by your accounts of tea and I feel like I've missed out on a great love I do want to spend my time you know, I mean, I'm surrounded by your beautiful teas here but I do feel that I've missed out but let's start at the beginning so your first food moment every single morning in my life I drink tea in bed it's it's what I call bed tea and it's that moment when you go back to bed with your tea before you get up before you start the day before I engage with the day and I've pretty much got my eyes closed when I do that and I love that slow gentle waking up and the most delicious extraordinary thing to start the day but there's only one thing better than that and that's someone else making you bed tea and having breakfast in bed having having someone take care of you nurture you and with the most delicious and delightful thing and I did get the chance to have that in Claridge's after spending years really trying to make uh, tea in hotels better because you know it's one of the worst things you really want a cup of tea and the worst kind is when you're in a when you're in a hotel isn't it yeah absolutely. it's like floating on the top of the cup the tea bag because it's <laughs> there's not enough heat in the water or it's been stewing for hours by the time it gets to your room by the time it's gone through the corridors of the hotel and you know it's just it's just hideous and I thought there must be another way of doing this so I designed um, a methodology for hotels where they could make the tea perfectly I can't tell you, by the way, because you have to go to Canada to find out. But, you know, perfectly, so that in the room you would get your tea even better than you get at home rather than arguably worse. Yeah. And, and then I got... I never, ever thought that I would get to have... To be staying in carriages and get to have it. And they invited you, mm. largely because you'd come out of hospital. Uh, tell that story. Well, um, I'd had to have some cancer uh, operation, and I... Very, very grateful for the NHS for taking care of me, and I've been really lucky. But being in hospital in intensive care, and um, it's very noisy, and it's quite um, difficult to relax and recuperate, and you don't get good tea. That's understandable. And just getting out is as wonderful as being taken care of. And I wasn't allowed in this situation to go home. And the time I was living alone and I didn't want to burden my family 
and there was no I had to stay in hospital until my friends and my family as I think of them now at Claridge's said well we'll take care of you you won't be alone in Claridge's and so I was able to leave the hospital and and have someone make check on me and make sure I was okay and and not somebody who would be burdened by that, but someone who made it seem like it was absolutely nothing, like, oh, I've got nothing else to do, but, you know, come in and open the curtains and make sure you're okay and, and make you feel like you're a princess or empress. And, and you describe it like that, and I think it's a testament to probably the relationship that you'd built up with Claridge's, that you were doing something which it feels, in reading it, that they really got you. They really understood what you were trying to do. Well, it's interesting, Claridge's is a very specific kind of hotel where they want to do things really well, and they understood that I wanted to do things really well rather than just selling tea. So, you know, making sure all the training development, just things like making sure the room service or the banqueting was the best tea you could ever get. Like, if you're going to go and have a wedding in Claridge's, you want to make sure that everything is fabulous. Yeah. And I really wanted to help make that possible. And so they understood that. But they're also a hotel that really believes in hospitality, and that's taking care of people. Whereas there are other five-star hotels that believe in profitability for their shareholders is the most important thing. Mm. They wanted a Rolls-Royce for the price of a Ford Cortina. And you can't buy a Rolls-Royce mm. for the price of a Cortina. Mm. And they wanted the best tea at the cheapest prices. And the people who suffer out of that is tea farmers around the world. Yeah. Tea has value. You can't buy tea for a few pence a kilo and expect people to thrive in East Africa or um, Asia. And it is a very strong theme, obviously, in the book. You go around the world. You go all over the world to find the best tea and to work with people who really, really care about their tea. Uh, you know, you, you talk about the terroir, which is the people as well as the soil and the climate. Mm. And you and there are so many different types of tea. It takes us on to our second food moment where we're going to Nepal. Yeah, I mean, it's livelihoods, it's communities, it's people's lives. They can't just grow something else there. The place they live is perfect and planted with tea. And so there, there are people who really need to build that future into the, and that sustainability thing when we talk about not using pesticides and herbicides and keeping the land safe for the future is also economic uh, sustainability and how will they survive in the future if everything is just on, based on getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and not better and better and better. And so there are farms like Jinchibari in Nepal where the whole focus is just on making something so extraordinary that you couldn't drink it and think, oh, it's tea's tea. You're going to drink that tea and go, me. <laughs> that is absolutely extraordinary. And it's a black tea. And we think of black tea as ordinary tea that they mostly make. But it's not an ordinary tea. It's, it's full of chocolate and nuts and and maltiness and florality and all these incredible flavour profiles that you don't have to be a great sommelier or um, um, you know, a chef to pick out. You'll, you'll drink them and you're like, oh God, I know what you mean. That does taste like dark chocolate. Or there really are notes of florality in there in the nose. And I think, my God, that smells like you know, the Himalayas in springtime, yeah. which is where you're, what you're drinking. So take us to the, the Himalayas. The Nepali teas grown high in the foothills of the Himalayas evoke those feelings in me, the most perfumed of black teas. They have a floral fragrance layered in dark depth, exoticism and warm comfort. I especially need this tea in winter, as winter approaches, when everything is shutting down around me. It's an elevenses tea to drink by the window, observing the rain and the wind clattering against the glass, the autumn light paling. 
It suits those shortening days of falling leaves like a perfect flavour pairing. Just as a puer matches wild mushrooms on toast, or an afternoon tea needs a scone with jam and cream, this Nepali tea soothes the dying days of summer, its sweetness proof against the white sky and rain. The aromas reminiscent of fallen leaves and the fragrant roft of the last honeysuckle winding through the hedge. When you're drinking the second infusion of a fragrant tea like this, try it with a square of good dark chocolate with a high cocoa content. As I write this, I'm enjoying a hand-rolled Nepali black tea with dark chocolate made from 85% cocoa and watching sunlight and shadows spread across the September field. The second infusion is softer, less floral but deeper. A sip of tea with the last morsels of chocolate melt in my mouth. The next sip of tea tastes like hot chocolate, but the texture is clean like water. It has both depth and lightness, like so many of the best pleasures. You've just recorded this for Audible. I can imagine, because it's such a sensual read about such sensual pleasures. I can imagine just lying in bed listening to this drifting off or having to get up and make a beautiful cup of tea. It's quite funny because I'm really dyslexic and I can't really read out loud. Um, Well, I always thought I couldn't read out loud. So so I said I wouldn't when I sold the audio rights. And they said, OK, we're going to get... And it was an American company. And they said, OK, we're going to get someone. And I think they just thought middle-class English woman. And it was all like, right, now we're going to Nepal and uh, we're going to drink some lovely tea. And I just, oh, it sounded so formal and so brassy and not very um, seductive. So I said, imagine, um, could we ask the actresses to read it as if they were reading it in bed naked to their lover? And then I got the most hilarious kind of breathy, oh, now we're in Nepal. And I just couldn't. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to do it. And... Um, I, I suppose because I'm so familiar with the book, it was a bit easier. But yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I did stumble over some words there and miss them out because I have to read every le- every word, unlike most people who can just um, uh, read the whole page at a time. But I love books so much. I've always been a reader, and even though I find it tricky to read out loud, and I'm probably slower, I, I just I've been in, in love with books all my life, and I've been and I've been reading them. And I thought, oh, Henrietta, you can do this if you can if you can teach yourself to read and and not have a problem with your dyslexia you can overcome this one too you overcome most things uh, you've had cancer twice um you have gone around the world on your own you have created this tea company you have absolutely transformed the way many many people think about tea what drives you bloody mindedness stupidity i mean stupidity often because you think because most sanity is conformity of opinion you know people think okay this is the world is and this is where it's got to be but i am um, a ridiculous optimist and i think well this is the way the world is now but it doesn't have to be that way and i didn't get into tea because i wanted to change the world actually i well, I did, but in a way of appreciating all these beautiful teas out there, and I didn't realise the economic impact. And as I got more and more into tea and I visited more and more communities, I saw that the industrial tea has such um, an exploitative relationship with the West. Life expectancy in tea gardens can be as low as 40, so that we can have a cheap tea bag, and that's going directly to us. That's our tea. That's not somebody else's tea. That's the tea we drink. And... Um, there's a different way. There is a different way of doing it. It is possible, and we can change the world a little bit for the better just by 
realizing our the value of our buying power you know by by choosing something different we can have an effect on those um those marginalized rural communities it's extraordinary and we get a better tea so everybody benefits and it's slow i've been doing this for 16 17 years and still people say you know tea's tea and you know they're happy with an industrial tea like instant coffee but i see what's happened with coffee and if you go to someone's house, you're unlikely now to be offered um, an instant coffee after dinner. People say, oh, I've got, you know, get the cafetiere out. Yeah. But there's still that industrial tea bag with the bleaches and the glues and the chemicals and also the, you know, the exploitative relationship with the farmer. And that's still a majority opinion, but it's once people know, they don't, they don't go back. And once you try a delicious tea, you're like, as you say, what have I been missing out on? Really Just for a few pence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, your third food moment, we're going to have a bit of a row over. You chose uh, an afternoon tea with Fergus Henderson, who sent you, while you were in Claridge's, pigeon eggs and Eccles cakes and champagne. I mean, these are the the kind of relationships you have with people. I, I would prefer you to go for the moment on in a train going through Tuscany. It's the most extraordinary story and I would love you to read it. Can I persuade you first of all to swap Fergus for your Italian Lothario? It's quite funny because Faber kept on asking me to cut that. I said, no, you can't have that. You can't have that in the book. You can't have that because it, because um, it would discredit you as an authority. And I said, let's let the listeners decide on that one. I said, well, if I was a man, I think I would be allowed this uh, this journey, this adventure. But as a woman, it's somehow supposed to, you know, if I'm if I'm in any way um, open to a sexual adventure, that would be a dreadful thing. I mean, we're as if we're still in the 1950s. Exactly, and you are nothing if you are not an adventurer. It happened on a train in Italy. I was highly unusually on holiday, heading south to visit friends. It was a weekday, early afternoon and I had a table with four seats to myself and my enormous hat. I put my small case on the seat opposite me and laid my hat on top of it. Just as the train was leaving the station, someone sat down beside me. I was reading, and I didn't look up immediately. I felt him before I saw him. He felt like the hum of a pylon. When I turned my head to discreetly look at him, he was smiling at me. Is that your hat? I apologised, embarrassed, and half stood up to reach across the table and move it. My book fell to the floor. He bent down to retrieve it, his head almost in my lap. No problem. Leave it. I'm happy here. There are two things I do when I'm unnerved. Make tea. Put on my lipstick. I got out my compact and dusted my reddening jaw. He watched me so intently that I blushed even more deeply and could see the red creeping down my neck. I took out my lipstick. Putting on my lipstick, always red, gives me a moment to slow down, combobulate. It wasn't working. I got out my travelling tea things and asked him to fetch some hot water from my thermos. Not everybody likes being asked to do something by a stranger. If you do it very gently, as though it was almost the most natural thing in the world and you were asking a dear friend, it sometimes works. When he returned from the buffet car, I had in my bag some very high-grade Taiwanian oolong from Angxi in China, the iron goddess of mercy. We tried infusion after infusion of the leaves, and they revealed their green and fragrant florals, soft fruit, umami and sweetness. We drank on until the leaves were utterly exhausted to a smooth mineral finish. 
He was quiet while he tried each sip. I explained how a tea master from whom I had bought that tea always lays out the twelve or so grades he has crafted that year in the way a winemaker might set out their different wines for his crew. I tasted them all and select three. On scraps of paper, he writes down the price of my selected teas and puts the pieces of paper in front of the relevant guy one. That's Little Pots. We have known each other for many years now, and although we cannot converse in the same language, we get along very well and have learned to understand one another. By now, he knows the form and leaves the room. I then remake each of my chosen three teas and muddle them up. Only I know which tea corresponds to the price he's given me. I then call him back in and he goes to the teapots and lifts the lids one by one. In turn, he smells the aroma from the condensation on the inside of the lid. He doesn't try the tea. Using just the smell of the liquid evaporated from the infusing leaves beneath, he arranges the teapots back in front of the scraps of paper with their prices on them. So far, he has always got it spot on, proving his pricing is no arbitrary figure. The man beside me on the train gave his full attention to my story and increased his concentration with each sip. I was impressed that he was impressed, which impressed him further. He bounded off to get more water. We started again with a fresh handful of leaves. I didn't get off the train at my stop. I got off at his. That is just so hot. (laughs) It's one of those extraordinary magical moments you can probably really only have if you're travelling alone and you are open to saying yes. That's really, really true. Uh, Travelling alone is a wonderful way of meeting people. If you're with somebody, you talk to them, you rely on them, you read books together you know you you have a traveling companion and as soon as you're alone you're open to talk to anybody and people help you and they lift your bag and they say ask you where you're going and they have concern and they're interested and if you're fairly well dressed and fairly polite people will help you it's really extraordinary I learned that as a backpacker and you know as a teenager that if you um, respect the customs of the of the land and you try and look as sort of clean and brushed as possible people will be nice to you and it was always something that um, intrigued me that people would be very dirty. Backpackers were often, you know, in not washed, filthy hair, d- dirty clothes. And the people on the buses and the trains that we were travelling on were beautifully dressed. And they had nothing and they were somehow managing to have clean clothes and be ironed. And, and I felt that with all our wealth and all our advantages, it seemed very disrespectful not to to try and be as personable and as clean and as good company as possible. <laughs> I wonder what you were wearing when you went to Coachella in the middle of the Nevada desert. I to a music festival. I love the way that you, you stay the way that you are. This very sort of, you know, nice middle class English lady with your big hat. Tell me you were wearing the hat. Oh yeah, they love it. The Americans love it. It's so funny. They they really want me to be the tea lady. And I think that I kind of developed my costume for them, just to wear a dress and a hat and carry my little suitcase. And they want, they wish I had an umbrella with a uh, parrot handle. They wish I did. And my brother actually gave me one for Christmas. So I, I haven't dared take it out yet. But it's, it's really true. People have an idea of what you should be. And if you conform to their um, expectation, it makes them super happy. But when I'm going around restaurants in London and t- talking to people, I will... Um, try and make them feel comfortable if I'm going to carriages I'll dress up and put on something smart and if I'm going to 
I don't know, visit Dave Chang at Momofuku in New York, I probably would wear my silver Nike Air Max. Take us back to Coachella just for a moment. Coachella is a music festival. Most people there are probably around... 30 and under or oh God, yeah, much, teenagers, much yeah, yeah. Uh, well they, are they teenagers they're rich teenagers yeah. for a start but most people are under 30 did they love your tea well I was um in the uh, VIP section so some of the people were a little older and so um, this is pop stars then yeah there were some pop stars Come and on, there was some drop some names god I, can't, I don't know who they were honestly <laughs> it was really quite strange Brian Ferry was there um uh, who loved your tea Pretty much everyone, because they were very discombobulated to be getting iced tea from an Englishwoman. I was making uh, iced tea, and it's usually something that's you know, very cheap tea, over-brewed, and then combined with a lot of sugar. That's a sort of standard iced tea, especially in a festival. And to have a really beautiful tea, cold extracted, you know, made to be the pinnacle of what the flavour profile could be. Um, that was very extraordinary to people, and they just had to taste it. And they were intrigued to find out what I had. You know, they were like, oh you know English tea lady and so that that breaks down a few barriers but they they really did love it and it was the same actually doing tea at Glastonbury we did that as well and that was kind of bizarre because people expecting a bag in a plastic cup and we were making leaf tea and you know, um, trying it's, to... Uh, well, trying it's the beautiful experience, isn't it? Yeah. You know, why not keep and, compounding and that? And why wouldn't you want a beautiful experience if you were a builder or a festival-goer? It's all within the realms of possibility. Yeah. Nobody needs to have rubbish tea. Life's too short. Yeah. And what I love about the book is that it has recipes for things like iced tea and, and the way to make a beautiful cup of tea mm. all the way through it. So you feel why not? Why wouldn't I try this out? Well, I think it's super simple once you've got a few um, basics, like if you understand that if you control your leaf-to-water ratio, you know, how much leaf and how much water you combine, just like making a cake, you know, having how many eggs to how much butter, um, how long you infuse it for, so like your cooking time, and then what temperature, just as you would for the cake. If you can control those three things, then you can get whatever flavour you want out of a great tea, and it's up to you how you like it, but you just need to understand the premise of how to break it. And everybody would have known that yeah. um, a generation or two ago. It yeah. was really, as I go into the book, it was really rationing in the war that people didn't get access to great tea and then we forgot. Like how to, why we warm the teapot. Isn't that amazing that people remember to warm the teapot, but not why they were warming the teapot. It was because you were making it in a different teapot and then decanting it into one to serve. And so if you decanted into a cold teapot, it would chill the tea down. So you warmed the pot you were going to pour it into. Everybody in, across Britain would have known that from the Duchess of Devonshire to a coal miner's wife, anybody of any social standing would have made their tea using that principle of making it in one teapot and then straining it at its perfect extraction into another. Mm. And it wasn't until the war when you had to get, you had to river a really long steep with boiling water and really to get any flavour out of a cheap soldier's tea yeah. that we lost it. And then we lost it for a for a long time like we did with food but but we have rediscovered our food and I wonder if we'll rediscover tea in the same way I mean I think that the the example you give of coffee is exactly right thank god for all the coffee geeks thank god for all the wonderful wonderful coffee geeks I love and adore them I love because they get it they're looking at where does the coffee come from what's the relationship with the coffee farmer are are we um, enhancing their life or being a detriment to them and then how do we make it to make it really amazing so they know about ratios they know about temperature they know about all the things that matter for tea and as soon as they've got to be the third wave of their coffee knowledge they're like oh what are we doing with an industrial processed tea bag you know with the bleach and the glue and the 
uh, nanoplastics and the non-sustainability and the detrimental relationship and that they're they hold, they'll take it close to their heart and change the world. Thank God for them. Mm. Uh, fourth food moment is... That is the Dan Barber. Yes, that's right. Speaking of which, Dan Barber is one of those people who is changing the world. The, yeah. You know, Obama's favourite chef, uh, he, his book, The Third Plate, is, is, a, is a manifesto for a really different way mm. of looking at food sustainably through beautiful tastes, through... T- amazing pleasure but a real sort of understanding of where food comes from yes and i did hear someone criticize dan the other day because he's feeding very rich people in a rich person's restaurant in and it's true Mm. the rockefeller estate is where his restaurant is but he's also a revolutionary and an inventor and he's an educator so he's using the privileges he has of the space where he has a farm to grow things to experiment he's got experimentations and wheat all around the country and he's trying to take that idea, yeah, all around America, and trying to take those ideas and give them a wider um, application. And I think that's a lot of the guys in the fine dining are doing that. You look at what Noma are doing. They're also feeding rich people, but then looking at how to educate and the Mad Mondays and the, and the experimentation they do, they spread around the world. There's a lot of people doing really extraordinary things. Tell us about eating at yeah, well, Dan uh, Barber's restaurant. He, have you ever watched his, um, is it one of those, Chef's, the, Chef's Table, you can see that he's a, he's a workaholic. He really is, that's yeah. him. And um, he's dashing about the whole time and he did take me around the farm and show me everything and what do you want to eat for Henry at dinner? I picked stuff that I was going to eat that night. It was so exciting. And then I was you know, great, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat this dinner with Dan Barber and he was like no way, I'm cooking. I was like, what? I'm going to sit in the dining room all on my own. Imagine this, you know, beautiful dining room where everyone goes to celebrate weddings and anniversaries and promotions. It, in and- his old parents' farm, he and his brother brought it back. Um, it's where he grew up. So it is actually a farmyard, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a beautiful, romantic, wonderful place filled with love. You yeah. can see that yeah. every detail is, is gorgeous and all the people are in the lights and the uh, they're all there to have a wonderful time and there's all this love in the room and all the flowers and the staff are amazing and that I was sitting on my own and I thought, oh my god it's so depressing poor me on my own and I'm, I'm surprised that you say that because I mean when I read that I thought but well, you go everywhere on your own you have all your adventures yeah. on your own I do and I'm you know and I'm uh, I'm I wish I was braver than I am but often that that eating thing is something that I can do in a in a street stall very happily on my own and I can do it in a you know a local restaurant quite happily but when it's a when it's a place for celebration it is does make you feel more isolated you know there's everyone else having this you know great time but if you're if you're just at a you know a bar you know in a or a you know outside at a street table it's fine yeah and I did feel a bit alone for a while and then I realised I'd spent the whole day with all the staff and they were all talking to me and the chefs were coming out and you know, I've, I felt enclosed in, in a lovely relationship with them and then with the food. That was the really extraordinary thing, is that when you actually eat on your own, you don't have a distraction from the flavour. And I was trying to pair the teas with the, with the dishes and I did it. I was actually got the chance to do that simultaneously, to make tea and to eat the dishes together so I could try and work the pairings, which is needs, you know, more than full concentration. It's such a ridiculously complex thing to do when you've got the whole cornucopia of tea so people often think that tea is just quite simple there's tea or there's just green tea and black tea or this but there's 
I mean, I can just looking across at my in my tasting room. I've got like two hundred teas up there, and then there's the combination of those teas, and you could make a blend from them, or how I make them, whether I used a very hot water or a cooler water to extract different flavors from them, and and then trying to remember all those teas, like I suppose like sommeliers, trying to hold all those wines and know which one will go better. But within within wine, you've got um, which makes it more difficult actually for a sommelier. You've got a much less uh, diverse flavor profile whereas with tea you can go anywhere and then you've got the herbs so you don't have to stick with camellia sensus sinensis. you could go to you know to the lemons and the mints and the almond blossoms as well as the oolongs and the lapsang souchongs and the greens and the whites and the blacks and yeah phew, so yeah. much so much and you know that's such a wealth of pleasure to be have out there and they go so well with food and i think we sometimes forget that we think um we reach for the wine because we have done for the last I don't know, 100 years? Not even. Mm. People used to drink tea with food. You are a tremendous adventurer. The story is about resilience and fun and it's exciting and it's also incredibly pleasurable. You take us into a world that is very much yours. Nobody could possibly experience what you've experienced, but you you are very generous in, in lending that experience to the reader. The last bit of the book is very powerful too it shows how vulnerable you are how sometimes being alone is is a pretty difficult place for you i have in the past certainly worked too hard and put too much effort in and had nothing no resources left and um i was i feel a great responsibility to the people i work with around the world and my team at rare tea and um, i don't want to let anyone down but i have learnt um that sometimes you have to take care of yourself a little bit in order to not let those people down because i think that's when we all you know when when we all get a bit down is when we've just not slept well not you've done too much got you know, got frazzled and you go to the end of your rope you don't want to get there like hold back hold some energy back hold some resources back and then you'll be less vulnerable you know we're stronger stronger when we're looking after ourselves better I wish, I'd, I wish I'd learned that earlier, but I'm still learning it. I probably, I've got another 100 years to go. I'm going to live to 150. <laughs> Just before the end of the book, you're, you take us to the middle of your night and mm. you're lying awake and you go and get a cup of tea. Another one of the chapters that um, Faber wanted to, to cut. My editor, <sighs> yeah, yeah, because it's too vulnerable. Travelling alone to a remote and unfamiliar place on the other side of the world, I'm rarely afraid. I feel far more elation than fear when I'm off on an adventure. But I'm not always brave. I'm painfully self-conscious here with you. In the safety of my own bed, I have known more dread than I felt alone in the back streets of an unknown city or bumping down a mountain in an ancient bus on a dirt road looking down perilous drops. There are times when, unexpectedly and inexplicably, a sense of unease overtakes me. In those moments... I am lost and afraid in my own head, fearful to take a mental step forward or back. I imagine you know that feeling. I think it engulfs most of us from time to time. Often it descends in the dark of night and seems to come from nowhere. Out in the world and in company, using a bit of humour and cheerfulness as props, real tangible problems rarely get me down for long. And yet, unaccountably, there are times in the night when I find myself incapable of a single bright thought. I'm a shivering weed in an abandoned asphalt tennis court. Teague can't always fix this, but it can always help, and it's far, far better than a bottle of whiskey. When I drink a truly delicious tea in the dread of night, 
I am less alone. Each sip unwinds the straitjacket of my isolation. I taste the farm and think of all the men and women who grew and harvest and craft the leaf. I feel the connection of all the people around the world sipping beautiful tea, possibly alone in the night like me. Henrietta Lovell, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.